Welcome to Healing for the Soul podcast with this being season number five, episode number seven. I'm your host, Robin Stoltman, and today I have my guest, Dr. Kristen Eccleson, who is an education consultant, a keynote speaker, a published author of mental health, and neurodiversity thought leader. And today she's on the show talking about neurodiversity. And before we get started, remember every week, I feature different guests to help you become the best version of yourself through different methods you may not have heard of or thought of. So let's get started. Thank you, Dr. Kristen, for being on the show. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Robin. I'm really excited to be here today. So what is your specialty? Because that's quite a bit that you do. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, So my specialty is focused on mental health in the education setting. So I was a special education teacher for a very long time. I loved being a special education teacher. And towards the end of what I like to call my in-classroom career, I had an opportunity to build a program specifically for high school students with mental health needs. And this was even before the pandemic. So I found this idea of why we had so many students being impacted with mental health needs to be significantly interesting. I wanted to understand and discover what was happening so that hopefully we could be more proactive in our approaches. So that's when I went back to school, got my doctorate in mind, brain and teaching. My research was based in mental health. And now what I do is I support families of students with mental health needs in the education setting and assuring that they're getting the supports and services that they need to to be successful. And that can be either through getting them IEPs, 504s, or just supporting the family with communications with the school about what supports and services need to look like. That's helpful because I know um, back when I was younger, I've had one of those IEPs. Mm-hmm. And those are very much helpful. Mm-hmm. And then, it's- of course, you'd understand like the ins and outs of where it can help parents and the mm-hmm. student too. Yes, because it's not just being an education consultant or advocate. I was a special education teacher. I wrote IEPs. I know what they should look like. I've been the head of a special education department. I know what the standards should be. I know what the law aspect should be associated with it. So I'm bringing knowledge from being both inside the classroom and now outside the classroom, having a specialty area. Um, Although I can help families in multiple areas of special education, I really do kind of focus or niche in on that mental health piece. That is that is what I like to do. I'm fortunate to be a director um, at the Weinfeld Education Group where I specifically work with families with mental health, students with mental health needs. But we have advocates that help in all sorts of different areas. It could be in twice exceptional learners, early childhood, but I really niche in and focus just on that mental health. And I do it for children elementary through high school. So there is no age limitation. I can help parents. I guess the silver lining of the pandemic is a lot of meetings take place now online. So I'm able to help families nationwide um, as long as they're virtual meetings, but allow my expertise, which is different from Most of the time you get clinicians or mental health professionals who are psychologists, social workers, and then they focus on education. So they started in that clinician piece, that mental health piece, and then get that education knowledge. I'm kind of the flip. I started with that education piece and that education knowledge and then brought in that mental health understanding. So I look at things in a very different way than standard or typical people look at mental health in the education setting. 
that makes a lot more sense. And then you're able to help people better than two because you at least have both backgrounds ahead of time. So it's almost like you've got one background ahead of the other background, like what you just spoke of that's typical and how it's done, which I think is more beneficial. I like it because oftentimes you get clinicians who, and, I, and I'm not beating up on anyone. I think they no. are are well thought or well intended plans. Like, hey, try this, this, or this with a student. But those individuals have never actually been teachers in a classroom before. Yes, they might work in a school setting, but they haven't actually been the teacher of record in a classroom. So they're giving advice or ideas that in theory should be great, but don't always work out well in practice. So when I am providing opinions or advice, I'm able to bring it from a standpoint of I know this will work because I have actually had to do it in practice as a classroom educator. That makes sense. That's kind of like with the parenting. I'm like, if you've never been a parent, right. you do not have the right to tell me how to parent. Right. Exactly. So it's a little bit like that. It brings me, I, I have a little different perspective. And I'm also an individual who's neurodiverse. I have ADHD. I'm always very transparent and open and honest with the students I work with. So I, I use that as a superpower, too, because I think it allows me to have a little bit more insight on how it feels to be a student who's neurodiverse in the education setting and what will work versus won't work. And it's not just theory of mind. It's practical application because I myself understand what that feels like. I agree with you. And that's what makes you really um, above and beyond at this expertise then, too, because you're bringing your personal experience into that. So you've been mentioning the word neurodiversity a lot. So what is neurodiversity other than a type that is, of word? That is a great question, especially because I often forget because it's my everyday that not everybody is immersed in what neurodiversity is. And really what that is, it's just an overarching term. So individuals who have autism, individuals who have ADHD, sensory processing disorder, auditory processing disorder, dyslexia, dyscalculia, all of those things are diagnoses that are essentially neurodiverse diagnoses. So when you're saying you're a neurodiverse individual, you usually identify somewhere with one of those, those diagnoses. And, and really what that just comes down to is your brain sees the world, processes information differently. I like to tell people on a regular basis that if you could put neurodiversity and being neurotypical on a scale, they would weigh the exact same. They wouldn't, you know, not one is better than the other. It's just all about how your world or your brain sees the world, perceives the world and takes in information. But I think oftentimes why people who are neurodiverse get, I want to say stigmas associated with them is first off, most of the diagnoses is like ADHD have the word disorder right in that. So I think that's a negative connotation that often comes along with it. And especially in the education setting, you have this one size fits all approach to how we learn. And if you're somebody who has a brain that sees the world differently, thinks outside of the box, is more creative or hands on, then you tend not to be in an education setting that's conducive to how you learn. And that can often lead to those feelings of feeling inadequate or what's wrong with me, or why can't I learn like my peers learn, when in reality, there isn't anything wrong with you. You're just as smart, just as bright. You're just not being provided with opportunities to learn in a way that's conducive to your brain. I wish I had been told that. <laughs> I can't tell you how many, how many, um, oh, they're not credit cards, but like the, I'm thinking of uh, the report cards. Mm -hmm. 
I'm thinking about those, like how many I've got. All my teachers kept trying to fit me into the box yep. with everybody else. And I'm like, I have never fit into the box. I never will fit into the box. If you ever put me into a box like prison or jail, I'd be the first one to figure out how to get out of there. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that's who I am. <laughs> Because you people who are neurodiverse tend to have a much more creative aspect. They they don't see things in the black and white. There's a little bit more creativity. You see the gray areas. You you think differently. You process information differently. And again, there's pros and cons to being neurotypical. Yes. There's pros and cons to being neurodiverse. But I don't think we give enough credit to individuals who are neurodiverse. I think one of the biggest concerns that I have is being an undiagnosed neurodiverse individual. I didn't find out till I was 30. I spent a lot of my 20s thinking something was wrong with me. You know, I wasn't as good of a learner. What was, you know, am I stupid? You know, am I not capable of doing things? When in reality, I was just as capable, if not more capable than some of my peers. But it was these negative messages that you get, you know, if you just tried a little bit harder, if you weren't a social butterfly, if you put the effort in, like all those things that, you know, we struggle with executive functioning on a regular basis when we're neurodiverse. So sometimes we are putting our best effort forward, but nobody gave us those executive functioning skills that we needed to be able to display and show that. And my biggest thing is I don't want kids to come out of school in at the end of high school and have to spend 10 years building their confidence back up because they got all those negative messages throughout their schooling career. They should be able to leave school just like their neurotypical peers feeling, hey, I got this. I know where my strengths are. I know where my weaknesses are, but I feel confident in myself and what I want to achieve. I don't want them have to go through 10 years of life before they finally get that light bulb moment that goes, oh, wait, I'm actually really smart and really capable and can do all these things, which all along they could, but it wasn't until some moment in time, 10 years later, that that happens to them. And they didn't get to have those 20s already feeling that level of confidence and ability to take on the world. That makes a lot of sense, you know, because um, it, it makes a difference. There's mm -hmm. so many people that lack confidence the way it is, and then they expect their kids to have it. And then it's like, if you don't have it, your kids won't have it. Mm -hmm. So that makes a lot of sense because that's usually around that the 20s or 30s when most people have their kids. Some of us get them later. But, you know, it's like you're still trying to figure that out. Well, that's more helpful if you can do it now. And so mm -hmm. I know you had mentioned, like, those are a lot of the areas that's missing from the school um, to help the neurodiverse children. Is there anything else that's, that you believe that's missing in the school for the neurodiverse children that they're not getting? Like for their needs. Oh my gosh, that's a loaded question because there's so many things. I, I think that there is a lot of research that exists today that talks about best practices. That's what it's called, best practices in the classroom. And I mean, there's research okay. from anything to what the color of the walls should be to, you know, what the smell of the classroom should be, what what should seating look like. There's this concept of called flexible seating that, you know, not every dawn does great sitting in a desk all day. Some people do better with standing desks. Some people do better with the opportunity to sit in a beanbag chair. There's so much research that exists today that says here are best practices that are not just great for neurodiverse individuals, but are just great for everyone in general. But yet, yeah, you might get a school or a teacher or a classroom that does implement something here or there, but this is not a universal thing that we've done yet in, across our nation as far as education goes, as in making sure that 
everybody is adhering to these best practices. We're still using very outdated, you know, you sit in your rows, you raise your hand, people talk at you for learning, which we now know are not great practices, but yet somehow we haven't started to move far enough away from that yet at this point in time. That would make sense, especially like the talk at you. Yeah. Because right. I'm like, I don't know about you, but I do better in the Zoom meetings myself when I have somebody actually saying, hey, do you like this or do you like that? Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're interactive versus the you got to listen to people talk all day because I can't. Yeah, Some because you're, are not it doesn't engage your brain. Yeah. And it just that just doesn't engage your brain either. So many no. students who have ADHD or were neurodiverse did not do well with virtual learning. That's not to say that everyone didn't, some did, but I would say the overwhelming majority of students who were neurodiverse did not do well with virtual learning during the pandemic. And a lot of it was because it didn't have the level of engagement that they needed to feel interested. And, and neurodiverse individuals learn best when the topic is interesting, when they take interest in it, when it's something they're excited about, because if it's not something that there's a level of interest in, forget it. And it's not because they don't want to, it's not because they're not capable, their brain is just like, this is not stimulating to me. So I'm going to check out over here and daydream about this thing over here, because that is at least more entertaining to me. So when teachers can shape or form their lessons to be more of a project-based learning, so that hands-on type of learning, you're more likely to get all students, neurotypical, neurodiverse students involved because it's more engaging, it's more exciting. That makes a lot of sense. So then... Um, when you're talking about that for the more that one-on-one, -on -one, would that be better for some of the neurodiverse children then? Um, I think some students do better with the one-on-one, -on -one, and that's for so, so many different reasons. It could be the one-on-one -on -one because of anxiety and the setting and being in a setting with a bunch of other peers is very overwhelming. It could be for that focus aspect. They need the one-on-one -on -one because they need to be able to ask questions the way their brain is ping-ponging. So there are some students that regardless do better with a one-on-one -on -one setting, but that doesn't mean that every child who's neurodiverse has to have a one-on-one -on -one learning environment. I think as long as the learning environment allows them the opportunities for movement ex and exploring and, and interest and projects, then I think you can still be successful in a group setting as long as those other needs are being met. Okay. So that helps then. So then what like discrepancies are there in understanding neurodiversity in educational settings? I think, again, it goes back to that one size fits all. I think in order to get any level of support beyond kind of what we think of just the standard general education, typically it involves having to get a 504 or having to get IEPs in order to have any type of instruction that is not or accommodation that is not just your general education. This is what everyone's getting. But I don't necessarily think that every child who is neurodiverse needs a 504 or needs an IEP. And let me clarify, right now, in the way the education system is set up now, they almost do. Almost every child does, only because 
it doesn't give those accommodations like a reduced workload or you know alternative way to demonstrate learning or breaks or anything unless you have one of those either or documents and and there's a difference between the two but at a higher level of just for the sake of this conversation really the only way to get extra supports or accommodations is to have a 504 or an IEP but in reality i think there are a lot of students who could do very well without a 504 or IEP if movement breaks or, you know, reduced workload or alternative, we're just how we generally delivered education to all students. Again, neurotypical, neurodiverse would all benefit from having some of these accommodations. Now we can get into, you know, the idea of equity and not every student needs the same thing. And that is true. That is a hundred percent true. But some things are just best practices that would be beneficial for all students and would also, I think, eliminate some of the stigmas of students thinking, what's wrong with me as a learner? Why do I have issues that my peers don't have? When, again, they're not issues as much as it's just my brain learns and thinks differently. So allow me opportunities in the classroom for my brain to learn and think differently. I like that. Because, yeah, you are right. It's just thinking and learning differently than other people. Because that's what I tell people all the time. I'm like, why do you think I have so many different tools? It's not because I want to have certifications up the wazoo, which I feel like I do. It's just um, everybody, I don't know when a person's coming in what they exactly need help with and what tool is going to work for that person. Yes. I can help. Like, like anxiety, for example. It's like, I can help somebody with anxiety, but I'm not going to put a course out there because I don't know on the other end who's watching my course or taking it, mm-hmm. what their style is. So I completely understand like what you're saying for that neurodiverse part. Mm-hmm. We're not all the same. Exactly. And even people who are ADHD or have high functioning autism, like they're not even the same. It wouldn't be fair no. to say just because you have ADHD, these are this is what you need. Everybody is an individual. Just because you know one person with autism or one person with ADHD doesn't mean that you know everybody who has autism or ADHD because you are still an individual. There might be things that, yes, these are, you know, some of your common themes that you might see in the person, habits, you know, areas of strengths or weaknesses. Those might have common themes, but again, there's still an individual person who needs individualized instruction that meets who they are as a learner. And I think oftentimes in the education setting, people get overwhelmed by the idea of needing to provide, you know, hundreds of students within a given building, individual and individualized instruction. But I actually, I personally don't feel that it's as complex as people make it out to be. Because for the most part, the foundation that everyone needs is there. And then there's just little things that need to be done for every person that are manageable and can be done. But I think we just see it as either too much or overwhelming. And and so that we don't incorporate that as just our best practices. And that would make sense on that part as far as um, putting it all together that sometimes it can seem like it's overwhelming. Like, do we got to change everything or just like one part of it? So what are tips for parents to encourage their children who are different to motivate them in school or find it difficult? I think it's important for parents, if you know that your child is neurodiverse, to have conversations with them. Um, My daughter is ADHD, so I have conversations with her all the time about her brain is amazing. Yes, she's going to struggle in some areas, but then she's going to really excel in others. And, And for her to feel good about who she is as a learner, play up all the really 
great strengths. I think so, so many times people focus on some of the negative things that come along with being neurodiverse. You know, sometimes your social skills are a little more awkward. Sometimes you interrupt. Sometimes your, your time blindness is intense and you're late to things. And we just really only kind of focus on all those negative aspects. But we also need to celebrate the fact that you're great in an emergency situation. Like you think quickly and you're able to respond quickly. You are somebody who can get like a week's worth of work done in almost two hours type of thing when you sit down and you hyper focus on things. You're great at teaching yourself things when you have an interest and you're like, hey, you know what? I think I want to learn how to code a website. You take a couple hours on YouTube and next thing you know, you're a coding expert. So there are a lot of strengths that come along with being neurodiverse, but we sometimes don't focus on those enough. We only really highlight some of the, the cons and not the positives or pros of being neurodiverse. I agree with you on that one because, yeah, I'm just like thinking about my kids. I'm like, yeah, they've got this skill and that skill. And then I've seen other people with um, autism. That's the one that's been like, they're amazing. Yeah. I mean, like, they're absolutely amazing. Like, they already have, like, you give them, like, for example, like most people I know, like you said, like the, the common themes, you know, that they have is that they're extremely smart mm-hmm. with certain things. But then when they've got it, They've got it and they can do it and they know how to do it. They don't need that repeat instruction like some of us. And I'm just like, I wish I had their brain just to have that power of like, oh, my God, I got it. And I don't need to worry about it. I have it Mm -hmm. because they're so confident once they've got it, they've got it. They don't need anything. You just let them go. You're right. There are there are so many neurodiverse individuals who, who their intelligence level is just I mean, I call it the, you probably have the ability to cure cancer type of, of oh, intelligence, sure <laughs> but, but they don't get that encouragement in school because oftentimes I think children who have that intelligence level don't even realize they do because they're so busy getting those, you're being lazy, you know, you need to try harder, you know, this isn't the right way to do, it. especially like in math classes where it's like, you can get the answer, but God forbid you didn't show, show it the way the teacher wanted you to show how you got the answer type of thing. Do you know what I mean? And so oh, I, yes, I do. I think you, right. You get, so you get these messages that make you think, oh man, something's wrong with me and how I learn. And so I think it almost hinders that confidence in an individual to think like, hey, yeah, I am that smart. I could go to school and learn how to cure cancer type of thing because like I am that smart, but they don't realize or recognize that they are because they're getting so many negative messages. I, I think I read a research study recently that said by the age of 10, most neurodiverse individuals have had upwards of 20,000 negative messages that have been said to them. And sometimes I think there are messages that were probably well-intended, you know, like you're so smart. If you really, if you tried harder, you could accomplish anything you want. But I don't think the neurodiverse individual always hears the you're so smart. They just hear that you're not trying hard enough, try harder part of that message. And I think going back, not having those executive functioning skills or not sure, you know, you're People want you to do things a certain way, but your brain wants to do it this way. Those are the messages that make you think, okay, man, something might be wrong with me. What's wrong with me that I'm not able to perform this at the level that that person wants me to perform it at? That makes a lot of sense. I love that. <laughs> just, I just was thinking about my little Lester now. <laughs> like, I've been trying to figure out, like, um, so the, my Lester, he is five years old. And I've been just like, God, I know whatever he is going to use his voice for. He is going to be one powerful man because he's the loudest. I mean, like, 
you hear that kid before you see him. (laughs) (laughs) But he is so damn smart. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I cannot for the life of me figure out what his gift is, like all this stuff. And the last few days I caught him and I'm like, his gift is singing because I've caught him and I'm like, I showed him some of the singing stuff that I knew because I was in choir and I was in band. Like I had that ability with music. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay. So I started showing him some of the stuff and he's been repeating it back. And Mm -hmm. he's got this amazing talent at memorizing things right away and paying attention to detail. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's what you need for music. Like Mm -hmm. he's really good. We play a game at the house. I don't have a name for it, but I mean, like we have a game where we're playing music and then I'll just stop. Mm-hmm. But he's got the gift that he knows the second that I'm going to stop. He's got that gift. Like he can hear it. Mm-hmm. And like he knows. And I'm like, that's very important in music because you need to know when to start and stop the instrument. You need to be able to keep up with it. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, that's his gift. And I was like, yes, I finally found it. So like with um, the whole neurodiverse thing that we've been talking about, this neurodiversity that is extremely helpful with parents to be able to know those gifts, but then also accelerate them because, yeah, you are right. He doesn't care what time it is. He loves to learn, but he mm-hmm. doesn't care what time it is. But if you bring it into the music part, which mm-hmm. I started doing, I'm like, okay, now I'm getting somewhere with this homeschooling. And I think that's important that I think a lot of children who are neurodiverse will will eventually show you once they have found something that's kind of their interest area and you'll know it's an interest area because they will go down the rabbit hole hard like they will almost become little experts even if they're young guys in that in that maybe it's knowing what all the birds in the area are and what they look like or sound I mean it could be a whole litany of things and I think it's important as parents once your child has kind of identified that area of interest and it could change 10 times over but once they've identified it really encourage it and help them to feel successful in that because that will be a way for them to feel those levels of success and their interest and their knowledge of these different topics because it might not be something that they're doing in school but they need to have that encouragement that they are successful that they are smart that oh my gosh how do you how do you know these hundred different birds in the air you know those types of things encourage whatever that interest is so that they have at least that one thing where they're constantly feeling successful in it you know i like that because it's almost like um have you heard of like the small wins like mm-hmm. even for the neurotypical, like we're supposed to celebrate our small wins that we have. Mm-hmm. I just got to think of what about like, what's your thoughts on having like a small wins jar for these kids? So that way, like they're in school, they're trying to build themselves up. Mm-hmm. Like you said, they're getting over those 20,000 messages, which is like, that's, that's crazy, that's right? Hard. Yeah, that's way too much. So what about having like the parents being able to have a jar of like, this is your win, like today, you excelled at doing, um, at playing this instrument today and you got your math right. Let's just put that into a wind jar. Like what's your thoughts on that? I love that. And I think, you know, and I think this is something that could be used positively with any child, you know, regardless if they're neurodiverse or not, but I think celebrating, Hey, you, you, 
went to school today. Hey, you made your bed today. Hey, I didn't have to ask you to put away your stuff when you got home or, oh my gosh, you did great. Like anything that you can do to build up will be great because especially with our neurodiverse friends, there will be days where that math test did not go the way that they wanted it to. And they're going to be in their feelings and they're going to be hard on them because all their friends around them didn't have that issue or the struggle that they had. And so if they can even see, and I, I like the idea of a jar because if it was like marbles or something that has that visual aspect then it really helps in showing that I have all these other areas of success. So yeah, this, this didn't go my way, but I have all these other areas that I am successful in. Okay. So that, that helps. Cause yeah, I was just thinking of that as we were talking, cause I'm like, what's a way to help reward the kids, you know? So yeah, I'm glad I thought of that idea. And I'm yeah, that's a great idea. I'm like, you don't like the perfect. Cause like you said, you, you have that background in education where I don't have that. You but know, that's so a great idea. So I give you full credit for it. It was an amazing idea. It's fantastic. So um, what's the best way for our audience to get in contact with you? Sure. The absolute easiest way is to visit me on my website, which is www.theneurodiverseteacher.com. On there, there's links to all my social media accounts or my email address. So that's probably the easiest and first place to stop is to come check out my website, Um have a conversation with me. I, like I said, I help families. I help K through 12 districts. I even help corporate settings that are trying to be more mindful and inclusionary of neurodiversity and mental health in their setting as well, too. That is awesome. Especially the corporate, that's a whole other, whole other thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we'll stick to this one for today. So I appreciate your time and energy as well as our audience on Healing for the Soul podcast. And be sure to follow me, Robin Stoltman, a.k.a. Healing for the Soul, on social media, as well as my guest, Dr. Kristen Eccleson. Where can we find you on social media then? Sure. TikTok and Instagram are a great way to find me. And the handles are the same for both. It's at the dot neurodiverse dot teacher. Awesome. So go out there and make it a great day. <laughs>